The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. James Renahan. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. My privilege to introduce Dr. James Renahan this morning. He has been the director and a primary teacher at the Institute of Reformed Baptist Studies here at Westminster Seminary, based here for the last 19 years. He is a graduate of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which we share in common. I'm very pleased to say that. And we're pleased to have him in our pulpit this morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And we'll read beginning in verse 31 and ignore the chapter division and read on into chapter 9. Romans 8:31. This is God's word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and patriarchs And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. May God's blessing be on this reading from his holy word. Let's pray together. O Lord, we ask you to help us to understand this word. 
give us instruction and give us encouragement, comfort, help to serve you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. When I was a boy living in New England, I idealized the American West. I watched it on TV. I wanted to live here. I can remember as a boy going to my father and asking him if we could move to the West. I loved it. One of the things that I really enjoyed the most, now you have to understand, I was 18 years old before I even crossed the Hudson River and went to New Jersey. Really, I, it was an idealized place to me. One of the things that, I, that most attracted me about the West were national parks. I wanted to see them. I wanted to see real mountains, and I wanted to see big trees, and I wanted to see deserts, and I, I, I had this imaginative view that the West was beautiful. Having lived here in California for 19 years, I can now say, indeed, the West is beautiful. It is an amazing place. And what I anticipated as a boy, I saw to be reality as a man when I had the opportunity to live out here in the West. One of my favorite places to visit out here, perhaps one of the most beautiful that I've ever seen, and some of you may have been there, is Glacier Point at Yosemite National Park just up north. How many of you have ever been up there to Glacier Point? If you haven't been, you must go. More than 3,200 feet or 1,000 meters above the floor of Yosemite Valley, 7,200 feet above sea level, with a breathtaking panorama, Yosemite Falls and the Merced River and the meadows and the cliffs and other falls and Half Dome and the Sierra Nevada. I love to visit that spot. I'd love to go there. I would go there all four seasons of the year and as often as I could because it's incredibly beautiful. And even the memory of it as I talk about it is refreshing to me, but I can't live there. No matter how much I love the beauty of spots like Glacier Point, I must return to my life, to home, and to the routine of everyday living. Glacier Point is a great experience. It's a place in which I can forget about my cares, but there is more, far more, than a visit to Glacier Lake, uh, Glacier Point, because everyone who visits must come back. Well, maybe there's an analogy there to Paul in the book of Romans. Chapter eight soars to the highest and most wonderful heights. Some have likened it to the top spire of a great cathedral or to the highest peak in a majestic range of mountains. At the end of chapter eight, Paul takes us there as he speaks about the enormous blessings that God gives to his people in their salvation. God is for us. He gave us his son. None shall charge us because it's God, the ultimate judge, who justifies. There is no one who can condemn because Jesus died and rose and intercedes. And there is nothing in a long list of things, there is nothing that shall separate us from his love. So we are more than conquerors through Christ. Friends, that's the highest of heights. That's the best place. But this is immediately followed by sorrow and anguish. Paul moves from the glories of God's salvation to the pain that is in his own heart because of the unbelief of the vast majority of the Israelites. In verses one through five of chapter nine, Paul uses very strong terms. In fact, he expresses himself in three ways in a solemn oath. I'm speaking the truth, I'm not lying, my conscience bears me witness by the Holy Spirit. 
in three different ways, Paul wants us to understand the anguish that he feels. You know, sometimes I think that what he's doing here is he's just opening up the door to his secret prayer room and giving us a glimpse into what's going on as he prays. And this prayer, which brings about this anguish, is because he loves his people. He loves Israel. He loves the Jews. And from a purely human perspective, he could even wish that he himself would be accursed if that might mean their salvation, be accursed for their sakes. Friends, this is profound sorrow. And it's profound sorrow that fits the pattern that we see throughout the scriptures. Jeremiah mourning over the devastation that's brought about by the captivity of Jerusalem. Or our Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, weeping over the city of Jerusalem. Paul is full of anguish at the unbelief of the Jewish people. And I think it's right for us to seek to enter into this kind of emotional pain, to go from the height to the depth. Indeed, salvation is glorious. Yet these people who had received so much of God's blessings, he lists them for us in verses four and five. These people who out of all of the nations of the earth had received these blessings are during Paul's lifetime wandering in unbelief. Paul's experience over and over demonstrated this fact. He had been rejected by them. He was beaten and forsaken and hunted simply because he preached the Lord Jesus Christ to them. They did not believe and they opposed them. And I wonder, as Paul is writing these words, is it possible that he was contemplating the words of the Lord Jesus about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and Israel by the armies of Rome. Is that in any way in the back of Paul's mind? It's speculation, I know that, but it's possible. Was all of this weighing on him? He knew these people, they were his people. He knew the blessings that they had received and only a remnant of them actually believed. Most of them had turned away. They hated the apostles, they hated their companions, they hated the gospel, they hated its freedom. And worst of all, they hated the Messiah. They hated Christ. No wonder that Paul could say, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Here was a man who lived with this pain throughout his life. I wonder if every time he saw someone who was a Jew or if every time he passed a synagogue or entered a synagogue and thought about the unbelief of Israel, if this was present with him. But what did he do about this? How did he resolve this problem that was so powerful in his life? Well, he tells us how he resolves this. He turns to God and he bows before the Lord's purpose and the Lord's ways. And we see this in verses six through 13 when Paul speaks of the doctrine of election. Why is it that the majority of Israelites are unbelievers? Ultimately, Paul says it's because of God's sovereign purpose in election. He is concerned about them. His heart breaks for them. But he resolves his trouble by an understanding of who God is. In verses 6 and 7, he speaks about the fact that there are Israelites and there are Israelites. There's two groups. The difference between the one and the other is the choice of God. 
And this powerful illustration of the two babies in the same womb makes this point. For God's reasons, known only to him, he loves one and he hates the other. He saves Jacob, but he rejects Esau. And this is God's choice. God makes the decision between them. See, Paul is telling us that election is simply divine choice. And there is no other way to understand this. You know, sometimes it makes people uncomfortable to think about election as a divine choice. They seek to interpret it in some other way. And the most common suggestion that we see today is that election is redefined as ratification. That is, God elects those who believe in Christ. In, in that sense, it's simply a confirmation of an action that a human takes. The gospel is presented, the person believes in Christ, and then that person is elected. But that's completely contrary to what the apostle tells us in this passage. Jacob and Esau were unborn babies. They were still in the womb. At the same time, they were within the body of their mother, and God elected Jacob to life. It's not a question of fairness or of ideas of propriety. Well, it's not fair that God this, or it's not proper that God did this. Paul resolves himself in the fact that this is simply God's choice. He is God and is freely able to do as he pleases. And this is how the apostle explains the fact that many of the Israelites were not believers. They were not true Israelites. They weren't genuine children of Abraham. They may have had his blood and his DNA, but they were not God's elect. You see, here the doctrine of election has profound applications. Let me mention one of them. It's a remedy here in this case for Paul's discouragement. That's exactly what's going on. He comes down from the heights of all of the blessings that God gives in salvation. And he shows us the inner turmoil that he faces as he contemplates his loved ones after the flesh who still reject the gospel of Christ. And he resolves this problem going from the heights to the depths in the face of great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart by turning to God and resolving his inward struggles by seeking and contemplating his Father who is in heaven. This is, this is really important. For Paul, the person of God, the Holy Trinitarian God of Scripture, is a deep well of comfort. Paul knows that God is unlike us, that God is unique and must be understood to exist in his own category of being. He exists in and of himself. He needs nothing from his creation. He is supreme and sovereign and majestic. He is holy, in the primary sense of that word, separate in and to himself. He is righteous and all-knowing and everywhere present and able to do all that he pleases. And to pick up the language of Isaiah the prophet, his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. As Paul contemplates this great and glorious God, he recognizes and expresses to us the fact that God is free to do as he pleases. So what does the apostle do? He bows down before this great God in order to worship. The unceasing anguish that he had in his heart was not wrong, it was not improper, but he goes to the right place to help him 
to overcome this difficulty that he faced. He is content to accept God's purposes and he's able to overcome his despair by turning his thoughts heavenwards. Yes, he has deep inner turmoil because he wishes Israel to be saved, but he trusts in God and he knows that what God does is right. You know, when, when we come to circumstances like this in our life, this must be our first action when we face this kind of inner anguish. The place to turn is to a thought about our God. Is it longing for the salvation of our loved ones, my older brother and sister who don't know Christ? Is it my care for them? Is it a struggle to understand why something does or does not happen? See, in this case, we need to turn to our God, not just as an abstract concept, not just as a higher power, not just as a philosophical one that we know exists somewhere out there. We need the one true living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who was and is and is to come. And we need to remember that he is great and powerful and that he is free to do as he pleases for his own glory. You see, in a sense, Paul is saying, not my will, but yours be done. And we need to say that as well, because it is a great comfort to trust in God. Now, there's a lot more that we could say as Paul continues on thinking about the resolution of this anguish that he has in his soul. And we could go to the end of Romans chapter 11, where he concludes his contemplation on this subject with a statement of doxology, giving glory to God. Time won't permit us to go on. I hope that this is of comfort to you, to turn you to the God who reveals himself in scripture and to help us even in the midst of what is righteous concern for others to resolve our questions in the person and in the being of the God of heaven and earth. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, thank you for turning us away from ourselves and giving us some sense of the fact that all of our questions may be resolved in you. Thank you for allowing the apostle to open up his deep concerns and to show us at least the beginning of the resolution that he brought to his mind and to his heart as he contemplated these things. And we ask that throughout the rest of this day, you would help us to treasure you in your beauty and your majesty. We thank you for the salvation that you've given to us in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Copyright 2017, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.